the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. As COP26 drew to a close, Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson insisted the Glasgow summit had been an historic success, which sounded the death knell for coal power generation. But he voiced disappointment that Beijing and New Delhi had weakened efforts to abandon fossil fuels. The Secretary for Environmental Protection for California was at the summit. Born in the UK to American parents, Jared Blumenfeld is one of America's most innovative environmental leaders. He's worked for President Obama, was appointed to his current position by Governor Gavin Newsom, and has more than 25 years of environmental policy and management experience, working tirelessly over the last three decades to protect the natural world and provide a better environment. Jared hosts his own award-winning podcast, Podship Earth and has trekked 2,662 miles, let's not forget the two, from Mexico to Canada, through searing deserts, rugged mountains and sparkling coastlines on the Pacific Coast Trail. And I'm delighted to say joins me now from Sacramento in California. How are you, Jared? Good, Helen. Thanks for having me. It's fun to be with you today. Uh, it's fun for me too. I've heard a lot about you from your mom, <laughs> renowned sculptor Helena Blumenfeld. I had tea with your parents, I think where you grew up in Grantchester in Cambridgeshire when she joined me on the podcast. So I felt that was a really good start. She's very proud of you. She's definitely my best uh, uh, promoter and ambassador. So I'm glad you got to go and see Grantchester and yeah, the family home. It was, it was a fun place to grow up. Oh, I bet it was. It was a magical place for me to visit actually with all her beautiful pieces all over the place. Absolutely fabulous. Such interesting parents. But Grantchester is where your love of the environment really began. I gather on your bicycle, isn't it? Anyone who grew up, you know, in the 70s, it was a time where you could kind of just get on your bike as a six or even five-year-old and just go in the fields. I remember we used to go to Hazling Field and Barrington and it felt like the end of the earth. And of course, Cambridge and that part of Grandchester is flat as a pancake. So you could bike as far as you could really have the effort to go. And yeah, it's where I first kind of felt that freedom of being in nature. It must have felt like a big adventure, I would imagine, at that age. But do you think that is where you fell in love with nature in, in the first place? It is. I think nature gives us different things at different times in our lives. And for me, growing up, it gave me freedom and a sense of independence from my parents, from the world around me. And so I keep going back to nature throughout my life. And ultimately, you know, I think this division that we have, Helen, between us and nature is an artificial one. We are from nature. We are part of nature. And the more we realize that, the more in harmony with the planet we can be. Why do you think it is, Jared, that I feel so many people feel divorced from nature I think climate change for a lot of people is such a heavyweight subject. People feel depressed by the news and I think they feel overwhelmed by the magnitude of the crisis. Do you sense that as well? All those things. I mean, just taking them in order, the divorce from nature, I think we're led to believe from an early age and it's deep in lots of aspects of our culture that we are superior to better than nature that you know even when you read the bible in genesis it talks about dominion over nature and that somehow in order to feel important and good about ourselves we 
create this division with nature. And the more we feel separate, the more we're in our homes and our cars, the less we're connected to nature, the somehow we think we're going to feel better. But in fact, we feel a lot worse. And then as it relates to just kind of the emotional toil of what's happening to the planet and reading about it every day and watching it on YouTube or the news or listening to this podcast, it gets a little much. And so for me, there's this beauty of nature that can help refresh us, can help get us to a place where we're feeling positive again. And so for me, it's this constant balance between what's happening to the planet around us that we're causing and the beauty that exists all around us that we can enjoy through going to a park in our city or going further into nature for a hike. Helena told me that you gave you and your father a very personal COP26 debrief on your way back to the States, which inspired the idea to get you up actually on the podcast. Tell me a bit about COP26. How was it for you and what did you make of it? Where did it succeed? Where has it failed? So first of all, Helen, I think we have these incredibly high expectations of what the UN can do. Unfortunately, the UN as an institution, I was asking someone at the Glasgow Conference of the Parties what they thought the most important thing the UN had ever done. And they said, ended the Korean War in 1950, which is a very long time ago. And I'm not familiar with that. But the point is, the UN isn't really set up to solve incredibly complex global challenges. I I wish it were, but we put a lot of expectation in it. The Paris Agreement a few years ago set a lot of people in motion to think that the UN could do more, and I definitely think it can. But when you have 140 countries present and 200 countries represented, and any one of those countries can say, Helen, we don't really like what's being written down here, it does add to this lowest common denominator negotiation where the weakest link is the one that defines the process. So that's the expectation setting. With that, there was actually quite a lot of positive things that came out of it. One of the big ones, I think, was the language. And sometimes rhetoric is just exhausting because it doesn't really move the action very far. But in this case, I think two big rhetorical changes. One was that fossil fuels are bad and that we need to move away from them. We didn't hear that a year ago. We really didn't. And it kind of mirrors what we've seen with tobacco and other negative things in our world. So that was one big one. And then the other was that countries, big and small, and India was one of these announced that it wants to get to a place where there's a total of zero emissions when you look at what's emitted, what's reduced, and then how that can be offset somehow, which gets very complicated. But basically, this race to zero was the other big thing. And then there were some actual commitments around short-lived pollutants. So when you think about greenhouse gas emissions that are blanketing the planet, some last in the atmosphere a very long time, like carbon dioxide, and others like methane are very short-lived. And so if you can reduce the short-lived ones, it actually gives you a window of time in which you can think about how to deal with some of the more complicated issues. So there was a pledge by more than 110 countries to reduce methane. Another big element, Helen, was the youth movement. People see Greta as kind of a singular person, but from all around the world, Uganda, the United States, the UK, there was youth activists and they brought a huge amount of energy and determination and focus on getting stuff done. And so net net, I mean, you read about this stuff, you read about Boris Johnson 
flying around and, you know, going back and forth in a jet. And some of those things are a little disheartening. But at, at the end of the day, I think countries are rolling up their sleeves. The UN report used the language of, Helen, we're at code red for humanity, which the UN doesn't normally see anything very alarmist. And so when they're saying it's code red for humanity, I think there was a sense of obligation and upping the tempo, which is unusual for the UN and a pretty good sign that something could come out of Glasgow. So a pretty positive sum up as far as you're concerned. Did, did you speak, Jared, at the event or were you there to listen and to meet other delegates? California is a state. We're the largest state in the United States. We have about 40 million people, and we have the fifth largest economy in the world. But the UN is seen as just for nations. So Biden gets to speak, the president of the United States, or Boris Johnson, but we're kind of the equivalent of Scotland or Wales. So <laughs> much sunnier and warmer. <laughs> First Minister Sturgeon didn't get to speak. So we spoke, and that's another weird thing about the UN is very large companies from Amazon to Apple don't really get a role, and yet they're going to have to have a role if we're going to solve the problem. The same is true with California and youth activists and others. But yeah, we, we got to speak in a different kind of venues, like California co-chairs this initiative called the Under Two Coalition, which now represents states around the world and has combined kind of population membership of about 2 billion people. So we're trying to help move the behemoth that is the UN from outside. You mentioned a window. We have a window. Where are we, Jared, and how close are we to the precipice? Well, Helen, if you'd lived the last three years as we have in California, you would think we were on the precipice. We've had the worst wildfire season in the state's history. Last year, four million acres of our state burnt to the ground. My agency, the Environmental Protection Agency, is responsible for the cleanup after the fire. And just one of them, which people around the world saw the fire in this town called Paradise, it cost $2.5 billion for us to clean up without rebuilding anything. We had the worst historic drought in a thousand years throughout the West and farms have had to close and cities are on the edge of having no water. And we just had an atmospheric cyclone bomb, which is an atmospheric river that just dumped a torrential amount of rain. I have to say it felt pretty much like Glasgow every day. <laughs> but, but here in California, it was big news. And then we've had extreme heat. We've had the highest temperature ever recorded in the world was in California last year in Death Valley. And so between all those, when people say, you know, when, when is it, when is the worst coming? Feels pretty bad right now. And many people, I think, believe that what we're experiencing in California and Greece and, you know, parts of Siberia, I think 40 million acres of Siberia burnt this summer. We thought those things would come 40 years from now. We thought they would be next generation, but they're happening right now. So we're feeling them. I don't think we really have any time left. We'd need to make it less bad. This isn't about some rosy future that's going to be better than the past if we just take action. This is about making it less bad. I mean, you saw the floods in Germany and Belgium this summer. It's already bad. And are we in a position to reverse it somewhat? That sounds a very naive question, but has it gone too far, Jared? Are we going to be in a situation where this extreme weather continues and people don't do enough? Because we all have to pull together, don't we, if we are going to make a difference? 
There's a little bit of a false narrative, Helen, which is that it's all about individual responsibility. If only, Helen, you recycled more and bicycled just a little bit more, the planet would be so much better. And I think corporations have really done a number on us to make us believe that it's our responsibility. It's actually their responsibility. If they're selling us a product, take that recycling issue. It's up to them to make sure it gets recycled, not us. And we've really shifted a lot of corporate profit and gain onto the public as it relates to climate change. And so I think it's two things. Yeah, we we definitely have to do everything that we can individually. And we can create a lot of jobs. We can create equity, which is a big focus of what we're doing here in California, because you can't really solve climate change when you have the inequities that we have economically in our society. And then we need to hold polluters accountable to make sure that they're owning their part of the problem, not just pushing it on consumers. But at the end of the day, the answer to the question is yes, we can do a huge amount that will help transform our lives, our society for the better and significantly reduce the impacts of climate change. You described there very eloquently that, you know, you do see at first hand Mother Nature's wrath in California, the wildfires. And I can't imagine what it's like to witness things like that on that scale. It must be absolutely devastating. What are you doing in California and can the world learn lessons from what you're trying to do out there? We're trying. I mean, we're trying everything. We started all the way back when former President Reagan, Ronald Reagan, bizarrely before, you know, he was an actor, then he became governor of California in the 60s. And at that time, there was such bad air pollution because of the car smoke choking Angelinos in Los Angeles that he put in place these laws that were the most advanced in the world, and they've just kind of led the world ever since. And so even in the United States, California has a special place where we get to set our own air quality and climate regulations, and the rest of the nation is then able to follow us. We had over 70 lawsuits against the Trump administration defending California's authority under environmental statutes, and we ended up winning all of those. And luckily, we have a good (laughs) environmental president in the White House in Biden right now. So California's really focused for the last nearly 20 years on climate change. And what we've seen is we've been able to reduce emissions while growing our economy significantly. We've actually now at a place like today, you can go online and look at this. I think about 63% of our energy comes from non-fossil fuel sources. And our goal is to get to 100% by 2045. We might actually get there quicker. We set goals to make sure that all the cars sold in California are zero emissions by 2035 and a whole host of other things that focus on environmental protection. So we're definitely pushing as far as we can. We, in our budget that just came out, we put $15 billion towards the environment, everything from making sure low-income communities of color have access to safe and affordable drinking water, all the way through helping put electric vehicle charging stations in communities that need them the most. So we're spending money and time and effort, but we're only 1% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And so to your point, that's really why we went to Glasgow is to learn from other people, steal their best ideas and share what we're doing so that we can really move forward quickly to try and solve this. I mean, this this is more to me, this is more than just a crisis. It's kind of the future of our ability to live on this planet, which, yeah, 
definitely is something that keeps me up at night. That is exactly the question I was going to ask, actually. What does keep you up at night? <laughs> well, that. Um, I, have two ki- I have two kids, Marcus and Anya, um, who are 20 and 22. So they're kind of right in the age of, you know, the youth activists that I met with in Glasgow. And for that generation, it's like, how are you leaving us a planet this screwed up? Uh, the best question I got asked by a youth advocate is, what were you doing because the, the climate conference in Glasgow is called COP26. And the 26 stood for the number of times that they've met every year. And the youth activist was like, what did you do for the other 25 conferences? Like, whoa, what's been happening? Why did we need 26 conferences to work out climate change is a big deal? So yeah, it definitely weighs on me. And the good part of being in Glasgow is there's so many people fighting for the same thing. I don't feel alone sometimes, you know, sometimes in these struggles, people can feel very isolated. I think the global focus on this is helping bring attention to the fact that it's everyone's issue to deal with. I identify with what you say about your children. We sit around our dinner table in the evening with a 17-year-old and a 12-year-old and disbelief really that how could you have got the planet into this kind of state? So I feel and live and breathe it and sort of feel what you experience, I suppose. And it's all right, everybody's saying that, you know, the future's in the hands of our young people, but they are looking, aren't they, Jared, with disgust at how on earth have you got to this point? Yeah, I remember like my son was maybe 10 and an Earth Day speaker in the US, we celebrate Earth Day on April 22nd, came in and said to the class, you know, kids, the future of the planet's now in your hands. And I was really proud of Marcus. He turned to the speaker and was like, no, we're just children. It's still in your hands. You've got to fix it, not us. And so it is still in our hands, Helen, in our generation. And I think we've taken so many things for granted. I'm a pretty optimistic person. So I generally think things are going to get better. You know, we're not going to be on this collision course. We still do have time. If people knew the gravity of the situation, they would surely take strong action to solve it. But I think Frankly, I've been thinking about this on my podcast, the model of capitalism that we have, which really pushes, and Reagan certainly, he may have helped with the Clean Air Act in California, but he also really focused on deregulating the economy. This idea that unfettered, you know, left to their own devices, business is going to do the right thing is false. They haven't done the right thing. And corporate profits and their, you know, need to satisfy shareholders has taken precedent over the habitability of the planet. And we really need to realign those two systems so that people are making money by doing good, as opposed to being allowed to make money by destroying the planet. And are we seeing a shift now to investors looking at sustainable investments and actually turning projects down that don't show their sustainable credentials? I hope so, Helen. I mean, you have a lot of good rhetoric, talking of rhetoric, it's just how does that translate into real action? And you read these report cards from World Wildlife Fund and Greenpeace and others, and it looks like some of these big banks are still funding coal projects in Africa and Southeast Asia. It looks like they may not be funding projects to get oil into transportation, but now people are spending all kinds of money to get oil into new plastic manufacturing facilities. And so it's hard for us as consumers. You shouldn't have to have a PhD in economics or be some kind of accountant in order to determine whether your shares, your investments, your retirement 
is in fact doing the right thing or not. And so some of those standards feel a little flimsy to me when I look at them, but it's definitely moving in the right direction. That's the good news. The the whole, it's called ESG governance, environmental sustainability and governance investment is huge trend. And everyone wants to get into it. And actually, I think there's a shortage of projects to put money into for these investors, which is a good place to be. So for those people who are listening and want to be innovators, you know, there's a huge amount that we can do in every sector to both make money and help save the planet. You touched on your podcast, Jared, Podship Earth, fantastic title for it. Tell me a bit about that. Stepping back. So yeah, in Grantchester, you know, as a kid grew up just loving nature and then you do these jobs. I did this job, which had me working for environmental nonprofits. And then I worked for cities and then I worked in the Obama administration. And what you realize is, yeah, it's really in many ways a dream job. But what happens is you kind of get isolated inside. Like, I like being outside, but the job of being an environmentalist is bizarrely an indoor pursuit. So at some point, I just got kind of sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I was like, I've always wanted to do this hike, which starts on the Mexico border, ends in Canada, and just do it by myself and do that hike for four months. And during it, I realized I met all kinds of amazingly interesting people that I would never meet in my normal life. So when I finished the hike, it actually takes a long time to adjust back into civilization. You think, oh, it's going to take forever to learn how to be in the wilderness. That takes like a month, but it takes like a year to readjust back to society. It was hard, actually. It was, you know, the noises of the city, which I never really had heard at that level, the smell, all the bright lights. And one of the things, my cousin David lives in LA and he helps people do podcasts. He was like, Jared, you should just start a podcast. So I thought, how hard could it be? And and, uh, now I'm on episode 121. It's not that hard, but... The first few took like 40 hours each to edit and bring together. And the focus is really our relationship with nature and how do we heal that relationship and what does it mean for our own emotional health? And really it focuses on everyday people that you won't have read about. We're not interviewing Al Gore or all the you know people whose names are kind of associated with saving the environment, but just people who are doing incredible things quietly often to protect the planet. I think you described the four-month trip that you took as being for you a healthy reset. I mean, what we, did you mean by that? We go through life with all kinds of expectations put on us by society, by our parents, by ourselves. We have all kinds of senses of what success looks like and how we should or shouldn't fit into society. And I hadn't spent a lot of time by myself. I've surrounded myself with people or been surrounded by people most of my life. So when you go and spend, as I did, I spent about... 10 hours a day walking and 99% of it was by myself. So you have a lot of conversations. You realize how much clatter is in your mind and you get rid of most of it and reach certain clarity about what it is that's important and how to rethink some of those issues. And yeah, it's, it's definitely mind expanding. I found it really painful. It was not easy by any means. The hike itself, there's parts where there's, you know, 42 miles between water 
sources. And the two things that I thought about the most, one was where the next drink of water would come from and the other was when I would eat next. And people were like, did you not, was it not all just thinking about home and your family? I'm like, no, it was like basically on the cusp of survival at some points. But it was healthy because when you leave it, you realize what's important and you realize how both significant and insignificant we are. When you kind of look up at night and see the incredible stars above you, you're like, wow, this is a pretty unique place that we're we're situated on. Can you transport us, Jared, a little bit and describe some of the beauty that you saw? Because it's very different terrain, isn't it? I mentioned in the introduction, you've got the amazing coastline, desert, mountains. In your words, what are the sort of beautiful images that come up when you think about some of the sites you saw out there? So there's different ways of viewing. So the Pacific Crest Trail is at high altitude. So it's going on the ridge line of the mountain spine that goes from Mexico to Canada. And unfortunately, you actually never get to the coast. You never see the coast, <laughs> but uh, you do. Do you not? No. The most classical beauty that you see is the Sierra mountain range, which includes Yosemite and Mount Whitney and it's a very angular granite and just the vistas you can see for, you know, literally hundreds of miles. And it only rained once in the hundred days in Washington state. I would say that it isn't a particular place. And, and I think people get kind of trapped in this, Helen, which is waiting for the next beautiful place. What you realize as you're walking and often when I kind of transport myself back to the place, I'm sitting just under pine trees having lunch and there's like a freak snowstorm and the big clumps of snow dropping and the sun, really strong sun came out and just created mist that's rising from the pine needles. And more than anything, a lot of the beauty was around the smells of nature, just that smell of the sap or resin from the pine trees, just walking along most of the trail, there blueberries and huckleberries and you can, you know, every kind of berry that you can imagine. And it's really that you wake up in the morning I woke up every morning at 5.30 and you just don't know what the day is really going to hold in terms of the vistas, you know, the challenges. And you get to a place where you're kind of in this zone of seeing the beauty that's immediately around you and appreciating that as well as, you know, I think the most striking place and I'd never been there is in Washington state. The Northern Cascade Mountains are very angular and actually there's very few places you can put your tent because it's so steep everywhere and they just jut out of the landscape and you have these very ancient cedars on them and moss and rivers and wildflowers and all kinds of birds, hummingbirds. It's kind of heavenly. And then compare that to the first 700 miles of the hike is desert. And so I hadn't ever existed in a desert landscape like that. And you have Joshua trees, which are these kind of half cactus, half tree. You have very few plants, but it's an incredibly beautiful landscape. And it completely beat the crap out of me. Like I was like, oh my God. I mean, 700 miles of desert is, I wouldn't recommend it, but it, it's definitely soul cleansing. Gosh, you definitely transported us there. That was a beautiful description. 
I think I read an article where you were talking about your trip and it said in the article that you sort of really came to terms or realised some of the complexities of environmental issues out there and how we have to make the messages simple. Yeah, I mean, the environmental movement, Helen, my critique of it is that one, it's been ridiculously complicated. Even some of the complex issues of natural lands, we in the United States have just got the first Native American head of the Park Service. A lot of the parks were created by taking lands from Native peoples. So even this concept of like, let's create pristine land that we somehow set aside and don't touch is responsible in part for the nightmarish fire scenarios that we have because this concept of wilderness as untouched landscapes was not what indigenous communities in America did. They actually burnt and did managed prescribed burning in the forest to keep them healthy. So we kind of had this white male vision of what environmentalism looks like that is not is not healthy in many ways and it I think set us back the biggest single challenge is, is for everyone to understand that we're all in this together rather than just a few people who like to go hiking. And even my story of this kind of one person going into the wilderness, it doesn't really fit where we are today. Most people want to be able to live their lives. They want to have healthy kids, be able to eat food that's fresh and not going to kill them and be able to get to their job in a reasonable amount of time. And that is environmentalism as well. Unfortunately, here in the United States and many parts of the world, if you're poor and a person of color, you're going to live much closer to a wastewater treatment plant, much closer to a hazardous waste landfill, much closer to the local recycling yard or the place that, you know, trucks go to get clothes for their Amazon delivery, whatever it is. So the environmental movement has to be about people and it has to be about everyone being included in it because if it's just a few people and their fun trip into the mountains uh, we've lost 99% of the people right there and one of the cool podcasts I did recently was with the founder of a group called Latino Outdoors and for example in California the Latino community the Hispanic community is about 42% of the state but when you look at who's going to parks it represents only about 5% of people who are going to parks are Latino. And so people don't see themselves often in the environmental community. And it's often viewed as very elite, very out of touch, and has done an appalling job, I would say, of communicating messages in a simple way to get back to your original question. Was also the hike a good way to decompress from Presumably what was a very busy and stressful federal government job. I mean, you you touched on you worked under President Obama's administration. I would imagine that was pretty full on. I mean, yeah, all these jobs. My brother, Ramey, is a a life coach. So we, we talk about this a lot, which is this kind of concept that if you're successful, you must be super busy. And somehow that if the job is stressful, it's because it's the job. Every week we get to make choices every day about how busy we are and I think I was not setting good boundaries around what it meant to do the job versus not do the job. And I made all kinds of excuses, especially in this field of environmental protection. The job never gets done, Helen. So there's a temptation to just keep working until you accomplish the goal. But ultimately, that's going to take a very large group of people working together and and no one person's going to save the planet. I think we have this concept that and a lot of environmentalists have like, I would describe it as savior complex, like 
oh my God, they're going to save the planet. And only if, if you give them the time and the money and the energy, somehow they'll do it. But that's a fallacy. So I think, yeah, what I realized is that I was in charge of how stressful the job was. I was in charge of how busy I was. And I had to send a message to employees. Like when I left to go and hike the trail, the, the most gratifying part was people who worked for me saying, oh my God, now you're giving us permission to do something in our lives that's not seen as a straight and narrow path of the job. You've given us permission to do something that could help fulfill us. And that was actually probably still the greatest gift that I could give, which is just leading by example. And how did you get into the environmental field in the first place? Because you studied law, didn't you? Yeah, I went to University of London. I think it's still called the School of Oriental and African Studies, but it may have changed its name. And I studied human rights law and really was focused on international human rights. You know, I think that this idea that no matter where you live on the planet, you should be free from torture, you should be free from persecution. And it was at the time of this big Rio Earth Summit, which was actually the first conference of the parties, if you're going all the way back. So that kind of bookends the experience. And the UN asked, could we do a report on the relationship between human rights and the environment? Namely, if your environment was destroyed, were you able to go to court and bring a complaint against the party that had destroyed your environment? And so that kind of began the whole examination of human rights in the environment. And I think it's what's kept with me which is this isn't just about the environment. The environment used to be, Helen, somewhere else. You go to the environment. But our environment is now all around us in cities, in our homes. When we're on the bus, that's our environment. And that's what we need to help protect and clean and make sure we're not so damaging the environment around us that humans live diminished lives. Touching a little bit, if it's okay, on family life, I was absolutely taken with your parents and Dad Yorick and his background and family history. Will you tell us a little bit about mum and dad and sort of what they brought to the table when you were growing up? My parents are kind of amazing artistic people. They both moved to the UK from the US in the 60s. And my brother, Ramey, and I grew up there. It was always kind of fun and bizarre to have American parents at that time. I think everyone assumed because my dad spoke like eight languages that he must be in the CIA or something. And you know, my dad had this amazing odyssey of escaping World War II, the Nazis, and then moving to the US and then meeting my mom, who was at the time studying political philosophy and ended up both of them moving to Paris and then she became a sculptor, which she is today and does incredible work and still makes sculptures in the house in Grantchester as well as working in marble and bronze in Italy. So yeah, they're amazing influence in my life. Both of them are very out of the box thinkers, very non traditional in terms of, I think partly they left America because they were so sick of the Nixon administration and Nixon was kind of the worst thing that we had until we got to Trump. And so, I mean, my mom, I think, was obsessed with how awful Trump was. And I think one of the happiest days of her life is when Biden became president. So yeah, they're very hooked into American politics, but also now having lived in the UK for as long as they have, very British at the same time. So yeah, I love them both and their amazing influence on my life. Your mum, I mean, she's such a diminutive, beautiful lady. And then you look at her pieces, I'm thinking of the five metre high pieces and the photograph of a sort of in the middle of one of the white marble pieces that was at Canary Wharf for quite some time in London. It's extraordinary to see what she does, but 
we talked about motherhood at one point and she was talking about you and Remy and something was said about being a good mum and she sort of said, I was a terrible mum. I was always in Pietrasandra in Italy and I was an artist and I think she felt guilty actually for being away a lot. That's the impression I got. And she sort of really surprised me when she came out with that. Yeah, I remember listening to it and thinking when she was talking to you, you know, that she's being overly harsh on herself. Ultimately, she was a really strong and early and ardent feminist and artist, and she had to make difficult choices. And as a child, we'd like our parents to be around all the time. And some parents are lucky enough to do that. We all learn lessons by what we see from our parents. And one of the things I learned from my mum was really this desire to fulfill career goals and ambition, not just for the sake of ambition, but for the sake of a purpose and a, a focus on creating something bigger than oneself. And so, yeah, she was an amazing role model to me. And yeah, I think we can all judge ourselves harshly for the times we're not there for our kids. But but even when I think about going on the Pacific Crest Trail, I was really worried about leaving my kids for five months and like, what would they think? And now they're like, dad, that was the best single thing you could have done for us. That showed us that we could do it too. And I think my mom, by doing what she's done in her life with such passion and vigor has blazed a trail for so many people, including me. I was really taken as well with your father's intellect and his writings. He gave me a beautiful book. And just took my breath away, really, with his knowledge and his expertise. He's a very, very clever man, isn't he? I think his generation, Helen, put a lot of emphasis on intelligence. And as a kid, that was actually sometimes a little exhausting. Like, is that really everything that we care about? And I was just having this conversation when I was back at the Glasgow conference with him about, ultimately, I think our generation is is more focused on emotional ability to connect to people and create connection and intelligence is important. But as I pointed out, our iPhones are like a thousand times more intelligent than we'll ever be, but they're not going to be able to really relate to someone else or tell a story or think through creatively what we can do next. So I think, yeah, the generational shifts as it relates to climate, as it relates to kind of how we think about the world around us, I think is a really hopeful sign because this generation is really combining intelligence and emotional resonance in a way to fight climate change that the old environmental guard really never did. Jared, it's been smashing to chat to you today. I knew we were going to have a brilliant conversation and I just want to say a big thank you for making time to join me on my podcast and I'm going to be tuning into yours, Podship Earth. And I hope that many of our listeners will also take time to find your podcast too, because it's well worth a listen. So thank you so much. And if you ever want to talk about environmental issues or your own connection to nature, you're welcome on Podship Earth anytime. Am I really? I might take you up on that. Thank you very much. I've never actually guested on a podcast, so that would be a first for me. Love to have you. Shall we do it? Yeah, let's do it. Bring your 17 year old on. You talk about like your favorite things to do in nature. I can also talk about my new business, which has sustainability at its heart too. Cool. Well, so I can't wait to hear about that. Yeah, you have to email me. Good. Let's do it yeah. in the new year. Excellent. Thanks, Helen. Thank you, Jared. You've been listening to Jared Blumenfeld, the Secretary for Environmental Protection for California. Do check out Jared's podcast, Podship Earth. And as I said just now, it really is well worth a listen. And hopefully I'll be appearing on it in the new year, which sounds fantastic. 
There are now more than 75 convex conversations. We're just talking to Jared about numbers there. I think we started off with an eight-week series, but there are now more than 75 convex conversations in our series. So do download at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back next week, uh, probably back in the UK, as opposed to crossing the pond with another inspirational guest. So do join me then. Bye for now.